Okay, this brings us to our speaker tonight. And our speaker, by the way, just yesterday celebrated his 19th anniversary. And uh, I don't care what anybody says, I think 19 days is a long time for a drunk. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he's a gentleman who I look up to. I really admire. He's kind of been a role model for me since I've gotten to know him. And he works a real good AA program, the AA program. And I really like to hear what he has to say. So let's welcome from the Giant East 4th Street group, Thank you, Ed. Emily, what we were looking for, chapter four, we agnostics. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Um, my name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, it's um, 12 hours, one day, and 19 years since I had my last drink. That surprises the hell out of me. I was not one of these guys that came to a... Uh, crawling and screaming and saying, hey, I never want to drink again. I never really believed it was going to work. I knew I didn't want to drink right now. I hurt too bad. Uh, all I wanted to do is find out what to do to stay sober right now. I think I was probably sober nine months before the idea began to dawn on me that staying sober was okay. And I'm sure it was a year and a half before I could really look you in the eye and tell you that I enjoyed staying sober. Uh, since Ed asked me to talk, it's been, I've been some reflecting. Um, and mostly the things that I really want to talk about tonight uh, are the things that have happened to me in 19 years. It's mind-boggling. Uh, I uh, came here, <coughs> what be 19 years ago tonight? Uh, I was in the psych ward up at the Good Sam Hospital, wearing my little white armband. I noticed one white armband here tonight, so... I always look for people with white armbands when I go to meetings because they're my kind of people. Uh, they, in those days, they put drunks in the psych ward. That's the only place they knew where to put us. But that armband was kind of like my security blanket. It told me what my name was, which I had difficulty in remembering, what, what my room number was, what my doctor's name was. I couldn't remember my doctor's name. And uh, so I was kind of proud that some people nowadays they kind of hide their armbands. Hell, <laughs> I showed it off. <laughs> I was kind of glad to, glad to see it. Uh, came up here and <coughs> started going to the meetings. I had mentioned Friday night uh, brain damage. Uh, in those days, Friday night was called a brain damage group. And uh, the other group that I considered joining was the Tuesday night group. Uh, but I found I wasn't eligible for that. My parents were married when I was born. so. Uh, <laughs> uh, <coughs> and brain damage sat with me just right. I... Uh, sit around over here in the corner here after the meetings and just listen to the guys talk and uh, they talk about everything from amazing grace to floating opportunity you never knew what they were going to be talking about and sometimes there were jokes sometimes there were stories experiences and I'd go home at night and lay down in bed and my stomach would hurt from laughing because I was using muscles that I'd never had used in so many years and I quickly became a Friday night member I uh Probably remember here for I guess at least 13 years, the best I can recall. 
that time, Friday night, uh, they had one rule. Uh, to become a member of Friday night group, you had to give up sex for a year. And uh, I figured, well, hell, I've been lying about everything else, so I'll just keep on lying <laughs> for another year. That's no matter. Father Bill was our sexual advisor. <laughs> Leo Osterhoff was our spiritual advisor. You know, I was sober six months before I found out those two guys didn't know a damn thing what they were talking about. Uh, but it's been an adventure for me. Uh, I call it the grandest adventure of my life. Uh, I say I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a big book thug, which means uh, really what it sounds like. Uh, uh, it's the only way I know how to stay sober. We didn't have a lot of the stuff you hear nowadays in AA, which uh, kind of oh disturbs me a bit. I um, got a friend in Tyler, Texas, that says that he thinks that bad information is killing more alcoholics today than booze is. I think maybe that might be true. Uh, we're hearing a lot of things, what I call alligators. There's an expression, if you haven't heard it, uh, says when you're up to your rear end in alligators, it's pretty hard to remember that the initial mission was to drain the swamp. And in AA, it seemed like our mission is to drain the swamp. And yet we hear these alligators. And the kind of alligators I'm talking about are things that you won't find in this book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> we hear things like... Uh, Oh, poly-addicted, cross-addicted, uh, you know, alcoholic syndrome, um, chemically dependent. Uh, I don't know. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, um, well, what Emily read out of the book. You know, tried running, helped, you know, white sugar. Saw somebody at lunch today. You know, I didn't get here because I ate too much white sugar. You know, uh, <coughs> cross-addicted. You know, I don't know. I get some idea somebody's practicing you know, some kind of... Uh, what the werewolves? Chemically dependent. Uh, you know, your father works for Ashton Oil Company. <laughs> Poly addicted. Uh, you know, sex with parents. Uh, I. That's you know, <laughs> what the guy said. Alcoholic syndrome. Uh, he thought that was competitive sex in a whorehouse. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. What my problem was. I found it by reading the pages of this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm. Oh, for talking about these things, don't get me wrong. But that's not alcoholism. Uh, we got to talk about those things because that's a story. But uh, people can die if they think that's what their problem is. If they don't know that what alcoholism is, what the problem is, what the solution is, they can die from those damned alligators. One thing interesting about alcoholism is you can't be arrested for that. Scott pulls you over and says, Mr. Rich, what's wrong with you? And I say, oh, I'm afraid. Can't be arrested for that. Or I've got a sense of impending doom. I can't arrest you for that. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a perfectionist. Can't get arrested for that. I'm a wimp. I'm a common mope. And that, those things are what describe the alcoholic. And they're things that I find are in this book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <coughs> When I came in, I listened to what these people had to say. And uh, you'll be happy to know that I've not had an original thought in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, what I talk about are the things that I've learned that were important to me. Uh, they tell me that if you steal from just one person, it's called plagiarism. 
if you steal from a whole bunch of people. It's called research. And that's, in effect, what I've done. <laughs> I've done a lot of research. And uh, I always try to find back, where does it come back into the big book? Because it is important to find out what the problem is. It's important to find out what the solution is. And it's important to find out how you work the solution to the problem. I tell the story about the beauty contest. You got down to three finalists and decided to ask them one question and solve, decide who the winner was going to be. Call the first girl in, an Irish girl, and said, you know, you're on a desert island with three men. What would you do? And she thought a while. She says, well, I'd throw myself over the cliff and thus protect my virtue and my honor. And they thanked her. Call the next girl in, an American girl, and says, you're on a desert island with three men. What would you do? She thought a while. She says, well, I'd pick the biggest of the three and let him defend me against the other two. Thanked her, and they called the third girl in, a French girl, and described the situation to her. You're on desert island with three men. What would you do? And she thought a while. She says, well, I understand the question, but what's the problem? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The problem is described in the big book, in the doctor's opinion, in Bill's story. And the solution is in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And how to work that solution begins with chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, it's important, I found, find for an alcoholic to find out what that problem is so he doesn't die from some of these alligators that you hear about. Uh, <coughs> remember the story of the two guys that were hiking in the woods. And they came across this bear. And they started running. One guy runs over to a log and sits down and pulls off his hiking boots and starts putting on his Nikes, his running shoes. And his friend says, you know, hey, that's not going to do you any good. You can't outrun that bear. And he says, yeah, I know I can't outrun the bear. That's not my problem. My problem is I just got to be able to outrun you. Uh, now, now, I'm the kind of drunk. But knowing I could not run that bear, I'd have tried to. Yeah, I never picked a fight I could win in my life as an alcoholic. And I'd have run myself right into the ground. So this book has shown me what the problem is and shown me a solution. And so I say I'm a big book thug. That's just what I'm likely to do with people. Take this book and really kind of shove it down their throats because that's all I know. But one thing I do know about it, I know that it works. Uh, I can guarantee that. And uh, I've seen the success of it happen not only in my own life, but in too many other people's lives. I guess I ought to tell you a little bit about uh, my drinking, because I got here by drinking. I didn't get here accidentally. Uh, I think I was born terminally weird. Um, my problems probably started when I found out I wasn't born in a manger. Um, <laughs> I was born in the southwest Oklahoma, Texas. Grew up there. And uh, I heard things differently. I don't know. I went to church. I heard about a God that was out to get me. Uh, seemed like I lived for so long a time trying to somehow get good or earn God's love or merit or something like that. 
And it wasn't until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that I learned about a God that didn't love me because of who I was. He loved me because of who he was. And that was a whole different slant as far as God, God was concerned. When I started drinking, I immediately became a daily drinker. Uh, I'm one of these people, I don't think I ever became an alcoholic. I think I was an alcoholic. I was just a guy I walked along waiting for booze to catch up with. And uh, met and married my drinking buddy. Ruined a good friendship in the process. I call her a plaintiff now. Um, <coughs> I uh, went to work for one of the rather large soap companies. And was transferred here to Cincinnati in 1955. And at that time, all I planned to do was change the name of the company to Rich and Gamble and move the headquarters to Dallas. So you got an idea whether I was a drunk or not by then. In October 1968, I wound up being carried feet first into Christ Hospital, psych ward there, and uh, had uh, done a pretty good job on the drinking. The, the doctor had told my wife at the time he'd never, I'd never lived the night, and uh, <coughs> she made funeral arrangements for me. So the funeral home to go pick it up. I'd become an it by then. She was claiming her problems bigger than mine. I was running around trying to hide fifths of booze, and she was running around trying to hide a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound yellow drunk. And I turned yellow by then. And uh, I came out of the hospital knowing two things. Um, he said, "Bob, you're an alcoholic, and if you ever drink again, it will kill you." And um, uh, I stayed dry for about fourteen months. Uh, to be honest, really, I was getting well because I, if I physically, I'd really beat myself up pretty badly with it. But in December, that following year, I started drinking again. I guess to see if I would die. I don't know to this day why the hell I did that. But uh, I drank for another three and a half months and wound up the second time. I did my graduate work at the psych ward at Good Sam and uh, went in there and uh, couldn't understand you know, why the great Bob Rich had to come to AA and do something about his drinking. I was so damn mad. I, you know, I tried to examine the emotions that I felt at that time, and I can't uh, separate them because they were so intertwined. I was madder than hell. When I came here, they talked to me about resentments, and I denied I had any resentments. And I hated a bunch of people, but I didn't have any resentments. Um, a lot of things I didn't know. But it seemed like this was the first group of people I was ever around that cared about me because I was an alcoholic. Now, I had people that cared about me in spite of the fact that I was an alcoholic, but, but there was a world of difference. Uh, family and friends, I, I always I heard from them judgment. And I got here, and I, they weren't asking the same kind of questions that I heard outside. The kind of questions up here were more directed at, you know, do you want to stay sober? I said, yeah. They said, we'll show you how. <clears throat> I always thought my problem was quitting drinking. The guy who's here says, Bob, that's not your problem. Your problem is you don't know how to stay sober. If you learn how to stay sober, you don't have to worry about quitting drinking. 
And I can tell you, my own experience, it's a damn sight easier to learn how to stay sober than it is to quit drinking. Quitting drinking was a bitch for me. But as they pointed out, your problem is you keep starting up again. So if you learn how to stay sober, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, I found out that I was an alcoholic. I think I knew I was an alcoholic. And I said, I think. I just didn't know what an alcoholic was. Um, my drinking, I could have defined an alcoholic for you. But one thing I'd have made damn sure of is my definition didn't include me in it because I didn't want to be one. And any time my definition did include me in it, I just changed the definition. That simple. So I got here, found I was an alcoholic, got a handle on it. An alcoholic to me is from the day one, and I've never changed this definition. An alcoholic is anybody where the use of alcohol interferes with their work, family, or society. The reason I like that definition is because that doesn't tell you anything at all about how old I was when I started drinking, who I drank with, how much I drank, what kind of stuff I drank, how long I drank, what time of day I drank. <laughs> it doesn't tell you at all about whether I got jailed, fired, divorced, hospitalized. Well, it did tell you about being hospitalized. Car wrecks, any of that kind of crap. So there's nothing at all about that. I'm an alcoholic because it interfered with my life. I could maybe say I'm an alcoholic because it was important to me. One of the biggest surprises I had in getting sober was to find out that there are people who simply, drinking is important to them, and I didn't know that. I thought everybody thought about drinking the same way I did. I really did. But <clears throat> the fact that so there are people that would go out and have one drink and then get up and leave, you know, go into a bar and have one drink, that blows my mind to this day. I don't understand that. Why would you waste your time drinking one drink? I might drink again, but it would never be one drink. That means like kissing your sister. You know, wrong with that. But I, in my mind, cannot to this day wrap around why anybody would drink one drink and quit. And I, I don't trust people to drink one drink. I wouldn't buy a used car if somebody just drank one drink. I don't understand them. And if they do something stupid like that, hell, they'd probably sell me a clinker. So, uh, <clears throat> But I found I was an alcoholic. I found out that it was an illness, something I had a hard time buying. I didn't really believe this was an illness when I came here. <clears throat> to me, alcoholism uh, was a moral problem. And I was convinced the guys, well, they, they told me, they said, you don't have to believe it's an illness if you don't want to, but just keep an open mind. And I really thought if I could stay sober about three months, then they'd come to me and say, yeah, Bob, that crap we were giving you about this being an illness, you're really right, you're no damn good, but you can stay sober. Of course, they never did that. And I quickly come to find out that it was an illness. And the definition of the illness that I like is consists of two phases. A physical susceptibility or sensitivity, if you will, to a drug alcohol, plus a mental obsession or compulsion to drink. Because that's me. Alcohol did to me physically what it didn't do to other people. I had a capacity for it. I did things I wouldn't normally do. I could see that there was a physical side to it. But the mental side to it, that was the part that had me buffalo. I couldn't understand why I'd keep doing it over and over again. Uh, well, the green beans had given me all the trouble booze gave me. Hell, I'd just leave the damn things alone. But then I wasn't hiding green beans in the garage and lying to you about how much green beans I was eating, you know. Uh, <clears throat> it seems with that booze, kind of like as a kid, you know, your mother would say, Bob, don't touch the stove, you'll burn your fingers. And like any other red-blooded American boy, I walked up that stove, 
touched the finger, burnt the hell out of my finger. But by God, I didn't do it again. But now booze, I went back and I burned my fingers over and over and over again. Somehow I was compelled to try to find a way to be able to drink without the consequences, without getting into trouble. And that to me is the definition of the, of the disease. Uh, the doctor's opinion says that alcoholics drink essentially because of the effects produced by alcohol. To me, one of the great paradoxes in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the reason I quit. I couldn't stand the effects produced by alcohol anymore. I simply couldn't take it anymore. I had all I could take. So I didn't come here <coughs> looking for a way to drink successfully. I didn't come here looking for a way where I went wrong. I didn't come here looking for what do you do to stay sober right now. And I meant right now. Uh, didn't believe these people. There's no way you could have believed, I would have believed anybody sitting up here talking about being sober 19 years. I would have bought 19 days. My limit of credibility was somewhere in the three to six months range. I figured you could probably tough it out for three to six months. And those are the people I talked to. What did you do? And they told me. Fortunately, uh, I got on the big book. Uh, second day I was sober, my sponsor came to see me in the hospital, <coughs> handed me a copy of the big book. And he said, Bob, read it and do what it says. Now, I was so damn stupid, I did that. Uh, we talk about hitting bottom in AA. I, I prefer the term being properly horrified. By the time I got here, I'd been properly horrified. I was willing to follow instructions. And I did that. But I learned something very important for this alcoholic. I found it was in the doing that got you well. It's not understanding it or believing it or liking it or wanting it or desiring it or being able to explain it. It makes no difference what your motives are. This program works if you go through the mechanic, if you follow what the book says to do, I'm convinced that you'll wind up sober in spite of yourself. Because I certainly didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't have explained it to you. Some of it I didn't like doing. Some of it I didn't really want to do. It's uh, roughly analogous to taking castor oil. I don't care whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, or can't make it or not, or be explained how it works or not. If you take enough castor oil, you'll find that damn stuff works. And I think alcoholics anonymous the same way. Uh, I know too many people that are sober today <clears throat> because their motivation for doing what this program said was to prove to their sponsor that it wouldn't work. I know too many people. I know people that are sober today because they came around and did what it what the program said to do because they wanted other people to like them. I know people that are sober today because they came around and did what the book says to do because they were hitting on some girl or boy. I mean, don't what your motives are. Now, I have to agree that eventually people don't stay unless they're comfortable, unless they like it. Uh, I can't imagine knowing this alcoholic, me staying around here, if I didn't enjoy this, if I wasn't happy. Uh, I just know the kind of drunk I am. If this didn't beat drinking all to hell and back again, hell, I'd have been out there drinking. I'm sure of that. 
So it's not so much what I've given up that brings me around. It's what I've gained. <clears throat> it's not... Oh, if somebody asked me today, uh, Bob, how come you're not drinking? It wouldn't occur to me to say, well, I can't drink, I'm an alcoholic. Hell, I can drink, I just can't drink successfully. No, that's not why I'm staying sober. Uh, I found a way of living where I've got some peace of mind, where I've learned to like Bob. I didn't like me at all, boy, when I came here. When people call me a son of a bitch, I agreed with them. But I found a a way of living where uh, I can go to bed at night and sleep comfortably. And I kick myself for the things I've done today. And uh, all I've really done is recovered from an illness, seeing the hopeless state of mind and body, as the book talks about. I find a lot of similarity or symbolism, probably a better word, in my recovery with Easter time, because I was sobered up, it was Easter time when I sobered up, and my anniversary is always around Easter. Because it symbolizes too, so much to me the idea of the burial of an old and a new new life, a new beginning. If you think about it, we're sitting in a room full of miracles tonight. And I'm convinced that every alcoholic that's sober is a miracle. And represents that Easter story. Why don't Joe is a line he used. He says if we could see all the miracles represented in a group like this tonight, we'd literally be blinded. And I think he's right. If we could feel them, we'd be numb. Easter does represent something that's alcoholics and I think is uh, important. Remember when Eddie came to see Bill in Bill's story? <laughs> Bill's reaction was, uh, here's a man that's been brought back from the dead. And later on in the book, it talks about, it says we were reborn. So I think Easter kind of represents that. I know I feel like the old Bob's been put away and it's, it's got a, there's a new Bob now. That's what Easter means to me. By the way, I'm entitled to one, I'm only limited to one joke. They passed that rule a long time ago because I tell bad jokes. But there's an Easter story you might like to hear. The three drunks were talking about Easter. And <clears throat> one of them says, oh, that's where you go out and get a turkey and you dress it and have a big spread and everybody eats. And the second drunk says, well, you idiot, that's not Easter. That's Thanksgiving. Easter is where you go out and you chop down a Evergreen, you bring it in the house, you decorate it, put presents under the tree. For the kids the next morning, they come down and open their presents. And the third drunk says, I never heard such crap all my life. That's not Easter. That's Christmas. Easter was where they took Jesus and they crucified him. They put him on a cross and he died. And they put him in this vault and rolled this big stone in front. And on Easter Sunday morning, the angels came down and rolled that stone away. And Jesus came out to see if he could see a shadow. And, uh, <laughs> that's bad. That's, bad that's my Easter story. I like it. I told that one year, and the fellow says, "You know, my higher power is going to get you a higher power for that one." <laughs> but I think there is a symbolism in the Easter message because it does say, you know, we are we are reborn. 
Robert Browning once said, he says, if you desire faith, you have faith enough. And I think that's really about the only spark we have to have in Alcoholics Anonymous, just the desire. We got the desire. That's really about all it takes. The book talks about willingness. And maybe willingness will come from desire. But I found that by doing those things that the book told me to do, that I wound up sober in spite of Bob. And the book talks about this uh, several times. Many times you've heard in chapter 5 where it's being read, A, B, and C, A, where alcoholic can manage your own life, B, no human power could relieve your alcoholism, and C, that God could and would if he were sought. One of our promises, the last one, in fact, it says we'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I don't think we alcoholics deserve so damn much credit for not drinking. You know, my God, this stuff is killing me. Yeah, yesterday I got a nice token, got a birthday cake, uh, nice cards. Uh, it's kind of strange. Uh, I'm allergic to penicillin. I see a lot of similarity between my alcoholism and my allergy to penicillin. <clears throat> I can't tell you why I'm allergic to penicillin. I don't know. My doctor says that to be allergic to it, you've had to have had it at least once before. Uh, I can't tell you why I'm an alcoholic. I disproved a lot of things. I thought it was important when I first came in to find out why I was an alcoholic. I have no idea, 19 years later, why I'm an alcoholic. Can't tell you. Now, I found out it wasn't because somebody stole my little red wagon when I was a kid. It's not because my mother put me on the potty backwards. Uh, I don't know. It could be something as simple as I've got an odd number of hairs on my head. I don't know. But it makes no difference. Why? Uh, I don't think I'm responsible for being allergic to penicillin. Just because I wasn't a good boy scout, you know, that has nothing to do with me being allergic to penicillin. I don't think I'm responsible for being an alcoholic either. That wasn't my goal in life. I didn't want to be a bum. That's not what I was after. I love drinking too much. Now, I am responsible in my allergy to penicillin to do something about it. Once I found out I was allergic, my doctor said, boy, you take penicillin again, you've got about seven or eight minutes to live without medical help. This never once crossed my mind to sneak a shot of penicillin. <laughs> I hadn't thought about once. Offer me a shot of penicillin, I'm going to tell you no thanks. Try to force one on me, I can guarantee you, you're going to have a hassle on your hand. We don't celebrate my penicillin birthday. <laughs> we don't do that. Uh, I'm responsible now that I know I'm an alcoholic. Sure. My responsibility is, is now that I know I'm an alcoholic, do something about it. There's some of my responsibility is. Not because I'm a drunk. Not because of that. <clears throat> we were looking at my, uh, I used to wear those damn dog tags. So. Penicillin, I still carry a card, being a medical alert to allergic to penicillin. But my allergy to penicillin, my allergy to booze, I find very comparable. But there is one significant difference. That that second part, that mental phase, that mental obsession and compulsion. I had no desire to try to find a way to use penicillin successfully. If the doctor says, Bob, we have to give you penicillin for what you've got, I'm going to say, hey, doc, and find something else. I can't take it in. So. And you know what? They got something that'll, that'll take the place of it. 
But there are some similarities that I, that I think are important. Alcoholism is not all that unique as far as being an incurable disease. I'm still allergic to penicillin. I don't have to take any to prove it to anybody. I'm still allergic to alcohol. I don't have to take any to prove it to anybody. And if you're allergic to strawberries or milk or anything else, I'm sure you don't have to take any to prove it to anybody else. Except society seems to be able to think that, hey, one won't hurt you. Well, hell, I think about my allergy to penicillin. I say, oh, one will sure as hell kill me. So I kind of hang on to that similarity. But we got a lot of diseases that can be arrested. Alcoholism is merely one of them. You can't cure diabetes. They don't know what causes that either. They know it's a malfunction of the pancreas, but they don't know what that causes it. I still not, anybody's never explained to me satisfactorily what causes alcoholism. <coughs> well, what it's worth, I'll lay this on you. I don't even think drinking causes alcoholism. How about that, Red Lake Sands? Um, uh, it sure as hell shows some of the symptoms. That's for damn sure. I found a program that worked in spite of me. A program that was really written for me as an alcoholic, as a drunk. You think about it, there's nothing really new in what AA teaches. You can find it in all the philosophies and great thinkers and religions and of the world. But it seems to be tailor-made for drunks, particularly this drunk. When I look at the 12 steps, what I see are the kinds of words enabled me as an alcoholic to come in here and make some progress, which is all they ever ask of me. They never, they never ask perfection. That first step, you know, where it says we admitted we were alcoholic. How many times you all sat there and listened to people up here talk and say, well, it wasn't until I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic that that first step really kicked in for me. I don't disagree with those people. I understand what they're talking about. I'm sure you do too. But have you ever thought about it? What if that step had been worded that way? We accepted we were powerless over alcohol. Well, the best I could do when I came here was to admit it. And it took me a while before I get to the point of accepting it. So acceptance was progress for me. All I could do is admit it when I got here. Today I'll tell you I approve of it. I not only admit it and accept it, but I approve of it. Second step says came to believe that a power greater than ourselves is a source to sanity. <clears throat> that step could have said believed that a power greater than ourselves. But the best I could do when I got here was come to believe. And it took a while. But I find those kind of words all the way through the steps. Words that let me and our heart make progress. And you see, that's all you all ever wanted from me, is progress. You never expected perfection. Look at that 11th step. So it's sought to improve our conscious contact. It doesn't say perfect our conscious contact with God, as we understand it. Improve. That's all you were looking for. Just make, make progress. And you come to find out that that's a pretty happy way of living. Perfection, I'm pretty well convinced, would kill this alcoholic. I tried to live that way drinking. I tried to get perfect and damn near died from it. And Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, look, all we're looking for is some progress. And that's a pretty happy way of going. What it does is gives you credit for being a human being. Wouldn't this be a crashing bore around here if we were all saints? Christ. Now, who would stay? 
uh, you know. It's kind of like uh, old Eddie Bauer talking to Glenn before the meeting. That Eddie used to tell me, he says, Bob, you got to get used to sleeping on the side of a mountain. Because that's what sobriety is all about. You'll never get to the level, never get flat, you'll never get to the top of it. You're going to be on a slant all the way. And if you think about it, that's really what our drinking was like. It got progressively worse. So it kind of stands to reason sobriety ought to be progressively better. Eddie told me once, I think he was sober 25 years at the time, he said, Bob, you know, this is the best year of my sobriety. Those of you that knew Eddie would know this guy was incapable of lying to you. I believe him. I can tell you that this last year has been the best year of my sobriety. That has been true for 19 years. What this tells me is this next year is going to be better than last year. Now, I can't imagine what's going to happen next year. I can hardly wait. I have no idea what's going to happen. But if that's been true for 19, that's what the batting averages is. God Almighty, can you imagine? I had a grandson last year, first grandchild, got married, um, and God Almighty, God really took care of me there. Greatest uh, person in the world. I can't tell you what's ha- all the good things that happened to me last year. And they're the kind of things that I would never have dreamt of. I'm not that smart. I'm a pretty much a common garden variety drunk. And get right down to it. And I've come to find out I don't know what's good for Bob. I had this idiot in charge of his life for so goddamn many... You know... If I could only sue me, I'd clean up. <laughs> you know, for mismanagement, I really would. Uh, I'm a terrible manager of my own life. And what this book has shown me is a way to let somebody else run my life, get Bob out of the way, and let me sit back in, in utter amazement, completely enjoy what's happening to me. So, that next year is going to be better. And it's mind-boggling to me. If I let it, I just stay out of the way. And the only way I'm going to do that is to practice this program. Work with that new drunk. It's amazing to me that how the program works, it makes no difference what the problem is. The solution is always the same. Always. Listen to people talk about their problems. And the advice up here they're given is always the same. Read the book. Go to meetings. Have a sponsor. Work with new people. The solution is always the same. It doesn't matter whether the problem is relationships, job, neighbors, automobiles. It doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is always the same. Read the book. Work with new people. Have a sponsor. Have a home group. Little old acey-doocy things you think would amount to a hell of beans. But by God, it works. And we sit back in amazement and say, I don't understand this. You're right. I don't either. You don't have to. I don't have to understand God. Come to think about it, he wouldn't be much of a God if I did understand him, would he? You know, a lot of things I don't have to understand. I'm the only guy to ever impose a lot of these white things on me. I never worked anyway.
There's a great analogy on, uh, I don't know how many of y'all know the game of Pinochle. Up there. We got some Pinochle players in the house. We got a few hands, yeah. Those of you who don't know Pinochle, the deck of cards is interesting. It's only eight down to the nine. There is no eight on down to the two. But the sequence of the cards are, are the power. It's ace, ten, king, queen, jack, nine. The ten's higher than the king. I can teach anybody in this room how to play pinochle. Unless we get hung up on the question of why the ten's higher than the king. <laughs> you know why the ten's higher than the king? Oh, I saw a hand over here. You know why the ten's higher than the king? I don't know either. I can't tell you. If you tell me that I can't teach you how to play pinochle unless I can explain to you why the ten's higher than the king, then you ain't going to find out how to play pinochle. Because I don't know. If you want to find out how to play pinochle, you don't give a damn on why the ten's higher than the king. I can teach you how to play pinochle. And that's all it's nice. It's kind of the same way. If you don't care about the why crap, why am I not holly? Why me? Why do I have to do this? If you don't give a damn about that stuff, and all you want to do is stay sober. We can teach you how. Why is negative anyway if you think about it? Why? And drunks, I've come to find out, through learning from this drunk, <coughs> don't respond well to negative suggestions. I'm quite convinced that if those steps had started off with the words, Thou shalt not, <laughs> I turned right around and headed right out that damn door. <laughs> Put me a sign on the wall here that says, wet paint, don't touch. I'll beat every damn one of you. Don't tell me not to do something. That's negative. But show me a way. Show me a positive way. Show me something to do. And say, here, here's what we did. Then you might get my attention as a drunk. And that's why the program is called the Suggested Program of Recovery. Now, one thing we got going for us, those that have been around a while, we've seen a lot of people try a lot of alligators, and you find it don't work. We've seen a lot of people spend a lot of time going looking at fly stuff, and find that don't work either. The ones that have been around a while, the ones that are happy in this program, you ask them, what did they do? And you'll find the answer is generally all those things I talked about earlier, the solution. You go to meetings, you have a home group, you have a sponsor, you read the big book, you do what it says. And maybe as a result of those four things, maybe you don't drink. Yeah. This is not so much a not drinking society as it is a staying sober group of people. Don't drink is negative. Thank God they didn't tell me not to drink when I got here. I got pretty dumb advice to give an alcoholic anyway. That's like telling him not to breathe. Yeah. Say, stay sober. We'll show you how to stay sober. We'll teach you how to stay sober. You got my attention on that. But don't tell me no. That's what all those goddamn other people were always telling me. Don't drink. All I ever heard was judgment. Bob, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? All I heard was judgment. Bob, why don't you be a man? What I heard was judgment. I got here by Alcoholics Anonymous and I wasn't hearing judgment anymore. They cared about me because I was an alcoholic. That's simple. I knew I was where I belonged. I knew I was where those Easter miracles were happening. I felt comfortable. I looked around, and I saw the lame walking, the blind were seeing, the unfeeling were feeling again. And I thought I could recover. 
So he used to do work. He really did work. And I'm convinced you'll find the same thing if you look for it, if you see it, listen for it. If you knew, <clears throat> hope was the first thing I think I picked up on when I got here. If it worked for them, maybe this might work for me. And maybe that's what you can get out of these meetings, just hope. Maybe the hope is there. But you don't have to have a perfect faith. You don't have to be perfect. All you have to do is try. That 12 steps is we just try. That's all it says we do is try. But you can use our faith. And it will work for you. Now I know Joe tells a story. This is from the bigger big book. Of this teacher, this healer, this rabbi, who was roaming through Galilee. In one of his miracles, it talks about <clears throat> the lad that was so sick that his four friends put him on a stretcher. These four friends, by the way, were anonymous. Interesting. And carried him to where the master was talking. And there was such a crowd around him. In fact, they had to lower him down from the roof. Remember the story? Remember the parable? And remember what Jesus' words to the young man were? Referring to the four anonymous friends, he says, through their faith are you made well. Through their faith. And I think AA offers the same thing if you knew. We know this program works. We've seen it happen. That's the one thing we got going for us. We've seen too many people try too many different things that you won't find in this book. And too bad it didn't work. You'll find there are winners and losers in this program. The winners are the people who did the things they had to do to stay sober. The losers are the ones that did the things they wanted to do to stay sober. That simple. No more, no less. That's all there is to it. They're teachers and learners. The teachers are the ones that are willing to go out and try it again, try it their way. The learners are the ones that are willing to learn from the teachers. We've got a real active research department in there. Real active. And they'll teach you an awful lot. You can come in here and do what this book says, wind up sober in spite of yourself, and be overwhelmed with what will happen in your life. I know, as I say, I'm a common garden variety of drunk. Nothing outstanding about me at all. I'm a product of what Alcoholics Anonymous can do, that's for sure. You got that right. <clears throat> Being right. Ain't worth a tinker's damn in AA. My experience tells me that being right and 35 cents will buy you right on the bus in off-peak hours. Or Sunday, I guess it is. You don't drive an alcoholic into an absolute state of paranoia. Giving the choice of being happy or being right. You're driving nuts. You can't stand it. 
A will teach you how to be happy. The book uses a phrase, happy, joyous, and free. Being right, read about the actor in chapter 5. See, I lived a life where I couldn't understand why you didn't judge me by my intentions rather than my actions. I got here in Alcoholics Anonymous and found out it was my actions that's what counted. It's what counts in sobriety. It's what counts, not what I think or feel. It has nothing to do with it, whether I agree with it. It's my actions. Because this is a doing program. And being right kills many, many an alcoholic. It's an alligator. Bill Wilson, when he was talking, oh God, I haven't talked too long. I apologize for that. Let me wind up here. Well, just with a thought, remember what our job here is in AA is to drain the swamp. Watch out those alligators. They'll kill you. And join the happy throng. I'm dead serious, as you may tell, about my alcoholics anonymous. You're damn right. But I have more fun than anybody I know of. I enjoy sobriety. And all I can tell you is I'm proof that by God it does work. Thank you all for being here tonight. Ed, thanks for asking me. Bob, I want to thank you. Uh, I've heard you at least a dozen times, and I still got something new out of it again tonight. And, uh, Bob will be here after the meeting if you want to thank him and offer your comments. Um, let's see. Do we have any AA announcements tonight? Yeah, hi, I'm Ken Taylor. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ken. Uh, yeah, Greater Cincinnati Intergroup's having a gratitude breakfast uh, Sunday, June 11th at 9.30 at Music Hall. Um, speakers Larry K. Sterling from uh, Oklahoma and the Donations 13. I got tickets if anybody wants to buy Yeah, right. If you didn't hear that, Elaine has tickets to the Spring Fling, April 29th, that I read about before from the bulletin. And Ken has tickets to the Gratitude Breakfast. Any other AA announcements? Do we have any out-of-town visitors? This does not include Norwood, Newport, Covington, or Cheviot. No? Do we have anyone here for your first time tonight? This is not to embarrass you, just so that we can get to know you. If you uh, don't mind, would you please give us your first names, please? Jeffrey. Jeffrey, welcome. else? We all had to show up for the first time. <laughs> um, do we have any AA anniversaries tonight? Yeah.
see a hand over the steps? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. My name's Ed, and I'm an alcoholic. Had four years last Saturday. Okay, if anyone wants to become a member of the Brain Damage Group, <laughs> come up and see me after the meeting, and I'll tell you what you've got to do. Uh, <laughs> any links? <laughs> um, okay, would you all please stand and help me close with the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>